Kevin Harrington, an original shark from the hit TV show Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass scene on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite, the four mindset shifts for senior leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there. My name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia, also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, this guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dolph is a, just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership. My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of thebeardclub.com. And I'd just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Apjohn, as well as Davis, AKA The Strategy Man. And if I'm gonna describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous, deep, and conscious. And that's exactly what you need from leadership right now. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, original member of the Jamaican Bobsled team, three-time Olympian, author, speaker, philanthropist, he is one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet, an amazing interviewer, but at the same time, an amazing speaker. Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm a futurist, executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead, and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are going to be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status, taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise, genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Burgoff, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I Call Bullshit, Live Your Life, Not Somebody Else's. Dov Barron, to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there, I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations. Hi there, my name is Rick Barker. I am the founder of the Music Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Bilyeu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well thought out ideas, often counterintuitive, which is what 
makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter. Here's what I'm curious about. There's been a global commitment to economic development of low-income countries that began internationally just after, uh, just by the time of the Second World War. But the question is, is that the right direction? Before anything else, we gotta ask, is GDP even an accurate indicator of economic development of low-income countries, let alone of the people within those countries? My suspicion is that it's not, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, that's exactly what we're gonna be sinking our teeth in today. Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm your host, Delve Baron. I am the Dragonist, and I'm here to assist you. If you are interested in hiring me as a strategist or an executive advisor for yourself or your organization, you can simply go to dovebaron.com. This episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by the Dragon's Lair. Have you discovered your next evolution? Imagine being in a virtual classroom where I personally walk you through the live trainings where I reveal the techniques and strategies that I previously only offered to top CEOs, C-suite executives, high-level entrepreneurs, athletes, and entertainers. And then being able to access those trainings and the exclusive workbooks on demand. That's what many of our listeners are discovering, and now it's your opportunity. Simply take yourself over to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Dove Baron. And in just two minutes, you can join us. In fact, you get access to those past episodes of the trainings we've done before, like ethical persuasion, becoming a meaning-driven leader, resilient leadership in a time of chaos, and finding your genius blind spot. You can simply go over to, again, patreon.com forward slash Dove Baron now and secure your seat. And as a bonus, you'll get access to the videos from this, from Curiosity Bites, only available there. All right, let's, let's chomp down on this particular episode. Got a really amazing guest for you. Um, last time we met, we were scheduled for a 20 minute talk. An hour later, both of us had to go. <laughs> <laughs> he is David Corton. He has an MBA and a PhD degrees from Stanford Business School. He's the founder of Yes Magazine, president of Living Economics Forum. He is an author and a leading voice in economic and social justice, critic of, of corporate globalization, and one of the most visionary thinkers of our time. He's the author of numerous books, including Change the Story, Change the Future, the Living Economy for a Living Earth, Agenda for a New Economy, From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth, and the international bestseller, When Corporations Rule the World, wait for it, which helped launch a global resistance against corporate domination. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome advocate for a planetary system of life-centered community-based living, Mr. David Corton! That's going to be a hard one to live up to, man. (laughs) Really glad to have you, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to it since we first spoke. But where we always like to start is 
what do you personally find yourself curious about at this time? I guess the thing I'm most curious about is whether this human species is going to survive its uh, um, its misdirections of the of the past few decades, and you know we're we're basically on on a path to destroying Earth's capacity to support complex forms of life, of which we are a leading example, and that problem is absolutely a a product of our misdirection, um, misdirection particularly concerning our economics and our relationships to one another and Earth. So that's uh, my whole focus is on how can we essentially wake up sure. uh, to the the sources of our misdirection, which basically are are totally in our head, um, and turn ourselves from essentially earth spoilers, earth destroyers, to earth healers, which uh, is, is I think, part of our, our, our role. Um, and, and I really, really want to dive into that because there's so many places for us to go. And as you know, John Perkins and I talked about that. And thank you, John, for introducing uh, us. Um, and, you know, we talked about the death economy and how we, you know, that's what the whole thing has been built on. But before we get into the specifics of that, Mm-hmm. With the what might appear to be to you and I ev- clear evidence, glaring evidence, why do you think that people just like are able to ignore the the evidence that is there by you know backing up trucks full of evidence? Why do you think we're able to to do that? Well, I think that's very much a, a function of fear. Um, mm. And, and the fact that while we have increasing warnings about what's happening, uh, we have very little discussion about what the, what the answers are other than things like, uh, you know, get an electric car or, uh, you know, recycle your plastics or, or things that are, are, are clearly uh, inadequate mm-hmm. relative to the significance of the problem. So, if an ordinary person uh, confronts that reality, it's just too terrifying because there's, right. there, there's no evident solution. And so because there's no solution, even if the problem is glaring, people will stick their head in the sand because they just go, well, there's nothing I can do. Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, clearly the answer is we need to a, a deeper understanding of why we're in this mess. Yeah. recognizing it basically is just within our heads mm-hmm. uh, that we do need to to engage in deep change and you know I frame it in terms of a civilizational change you can actually frame it in terms of it's it's time that we finally became actually civilized as a species yes. uh, <laughs> you're really pushing it now mate you yeah. are really pushing it now <laughs> but this you know this is not a uh, this is not a simple issue that we can fix with a few adjustments at the margin that it, uh, it, it requires a, a fundamentally transformational change in our relationships with one another and our relationships with with earth as a living yeah. being um, yeah. so before we get into all that because there's so much to unpack in there uh, um, I would love you to sort of walk us through a little bit about, because um, you are 
I mean, your accolades are up the yin yang. I mean, <laughs> insanely good. Um, but you have upset a couple of establishment apple carts along the way. So, so walk us through a little bit about your your path of upsetting the apple carts and what huh. brought you to that. Just because I want people to have some some context for this amazing man that we're having a conversation with. Well, it is kind of an interesting life journey. Um, yeah. I, I grew up in Longview, Washington. You know, you live in Vancouver, BC, as I understand. Um, I live in the island just off Seattle. If you go directly south down to the uh, Columbia River, you come to Longview, Washington, which is where I grew up. Um, in a way, as an industrial town, uh, but I grew up a very conservative um, Republican. Um, absolutely no racial diversity. The most, the most exotic person in my life was my aunt, who was uh, had red hair and was a Catholic. Um, oh, that's pretty exotic. <laughs> that's pretty exotic. Yeah. That was <laughs> what island are you from? Yeah. Ireland. <laughs> my, you know, my dad ran a, a retail music and appliance store, and I, I grew up assuming that uh, I would be spending my life in Longview. And yeah. would, as the eldest son, I would take over the business school, and that would be my, I'm not the business school, the, uh, the store, and that would be yeah. my life. Yeah. Um, so as it turned out, uh, I went to Stanford with the intention of studying business as an undergraduate. They didn't have any uh, business. It, it, uh, the business program turned out was in graduate school. So, so I'll sign up for economics. Um, studied economics for a couple of years. And, you know, none of the other members of my family had ever graduated from college. And I, I really, frankly, didn't know what it meant to be educated. But I, I actually figured out that whatever they were teaching in economics was could not be what people consider an education um, and so I changed to psychology um, mm. but the the real turning point in my life came in my senior year uh, we had to take a senior colloquium something outside of our major taught by a professor who was just teaching something he wanted to teach and there was this this seminar on a modern revolution. Well, as a, a fervent anti-communist and far-right Republican, um, I thought that might be worth learning something about why we have those those revolutions around the world. Yeah. So what I learned was that they were uh, they were a response to poverty, extreme poverty, mm -hmm. and so. As a result of that, I, that's where I actually made a decision that I'm going to devote my life to ending poverty rather than going back and running the family business. And wow, <laughs> that that was a a very deep change of course. And you know, from there, I spent 30 years working in international development, 21 years of them living in, uh, first of all, in Ethiopia, setting up a business school. And then uh, later as the Harvard Business School advisor to the Central American Management Institute, which was the leading MBA program in South America. Um, and then late, later living for 15 years, uh, partly as a, uh, as a staff member of the, of the Ford Foundation 
in Asia, in the Philippines, and Indonesia. And in the course of that, um, I obviously came to a, <laughs> a rather deeper understanding of, of poverty and, and certainly of the world than I had grown up with. And so what what, just, to, just for a, let me just put a pause in it for a moment. Yeah. What is the, what is the, uh, what is the time gap between being this Republican kid <laughs> in Washington uh, who was maybe going to take over the family business to becoming the, you know, becoming this, this world economics guy, you know, who's in Asia and Ethiopia and South America, you know, it's like, it seems like, you know, that was a massive, massive change. How long is that span? Well, the time it took me to move beyond being a Republican was somewhat shorter <laughs> than that. That was a hard one to get off the line, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I met my wife when I was uh, in graduate school at Stanford in the business school, and uh, uh, she was a freshman. Um, but anyhow, she was not a... Uh, a Republican. We somehow managed to get together anyhow on a lot of common ground, and uh, I end up aligning much more with, <laughs> with her politics. Uh, although I've also come to recognize the, the shortcomings in the Democratic Party also. Of course. Both, both of them are essentially, or have been, establishment uh, parties. Absolutely. Uh, each appealing to a different part of the uh, of the electorate, but yeah. not that different an agenda. Uh, they were both serving the, the corporate agenda, which I, I I hope with the progressive movement and the Democratic Party that we're moving beyond that. Um, so clearly, we have to move way far beyond that, um, and and not in the direction of classic socialism, but in terms of a very uh, very different and basically a, a, a new approach. Um, yeah, and, and I really want to hear from you in a bit because I want to go to that. What is the new model? Because, you know, again, I don't want to go too far down this road because we're going to double back on it. But the truth of the matter is that even the word socialism scares the crap out of Americans um, so because the they, hey, they don't understand it. And they, they immediately turn socialism into communism, and it's vastly different. And what they perceive it as is very different than what it actually is. I mean, you and I both know that when Obama was elected, you know, the, the right said, oh, he's, he's a socialist. And like, he's a corporate Democrat. He couldn't be further from socialism <laughs> if he tried. Right? Exactly. So, but we want to we come to that solution in a minute. I, I really want to know more about this this journey you you've been on and you know so you, you you've, I, I have to mention i have to mention this in passing since you mentioned yeah. obama you know one of the extraordinary things in our lives when fran and i were living in uh, indonesia um and she was working for the ford foundation there uh, obama's mother was also working for the ford foundation in the office right next door to my wife really? so, uh, Wow, we, we knew his mother quite well. <laughs> Is that right? We never knew Barry's him. mom. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, just on the socialism capitalism part, the the idea that the society needs to be organized totally around uh, private ownership, uh, particularly monopolistic, concentrated, uh, you know, truly capitalistic uh, ownership. Or it has to be all uh, all socialism, all owned by government, um, is is just a simply a simplistic view of the world. Um, mm -hmm. Is part of our problem. Um, we need much more nuanced approaches, uh, right? Which I assume we'll get into later. Yeah. So you 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 like I said, you went from being this Washington kid, supposed to take over the family business, end up at Stanford end up traveling the world and, you know, being a, an economic force driven by this idea of understanding that, you know, revolutions are powered by really poverty by people struggling against a system and saying enough's enough, which I, you know, I think the whole, you and I can have a big conversation about revolution and uh, because I personally think America's on the brink of one, but aside from that, what I'm really interested in uh, as we move forward here is this idea of, like I said, I, I think, I believe that even as that guy who went to Stanford, you've kind of upset the apple cart on the concepts of what economy should be and how we should be looking at money. I, I'm really interested in, t tell us a story about an apple cart you've upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 clearly, what I ended up with is uh, is not what we uh, what what they teach at the Harvard Business School, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, if you well, w once I got once I got into um, began to deepen my understanding, what I realized was that the basic dynamic of of development it's it's very much like what john perkins described to you in terms of 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 his understanding mm -hmm. i came at it from a very different direction because he came kind of the top down yeah <laughs> um and when i when i first read you know I, we had the same publisher and uh, uh they, they asked me to read his manuscript and when i when i first read the the the, the manuscript of confessions of Dick, i hit hitman I thought, oh my God, this is what I thought was going on, um, but I could never be sure. And here's this guy who says he was actually doing it. It was on the inside. Um, so what you, you, let's just use that for, for, as, a, as a place for a minute, because yeah. here's John coming in from the top and doing these malevolent behaviors, we'll call them that. Um, and when you read that book, uh, when you read Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where were you in that in that world, you know, of what well, he was talking about? Well, that was actually after I had written When Corporations Rule the World. So, oh, okay. Um, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> I'd gotten, I, I, I gotten a long ways uh, in my own understanding. Sure. Um, but what I, you know, what I'd come to, to, to realize is that, um, you know, we started out with these traditional societies 
And by the economists reckoning, uh, they were absolutely poor. They had no money, whatever. Mm. Uh, but of course, they didn't use money. Right. They, they organized as, as communities in relationship to the land. And uh, some of them were in fairly desperate conditions, but a, a, a lot of them were reasonably well off. They had, you know, they had a place to live that was mm -hmm. reasonably secure. Um, they had reasonably reliable and, and generally healthy sources of food. Um, you know, they had their own medical practices and so forth. And so while there were many things that could be could be introduced to improve their lives, particularly mm -hmm. some of our modern public health understanding. Yeah. Um, the other things we should have been focused on were what other things would help them do better what they already know how to do. Mm. And my wife and I got into this particularly in, <clears throat> in Asia in our work with the Ford Foundation, it was particularly her work. Uh, but just with uh, with irrigation, which was a traditional skill and, and uh, mode of organization that, uh, you know, communities in the Philippines, Indonesia and other countries, uh, you know, some have developed quite extraordinary, very large uh, irrigation systems, which they manage themselves without money um you know to irrigate their crops um and they did it quite well um <clears throat> now what what we got into and discovered was that when government when the government national governments came in unless they had built an irrigation system it did not exist so their idea of helping a community was coming in and tearing up its irrigation system replacing it with one that they built and then that the government ran mm. um, uh, which usually came out with poorer overall service and and it also disrupted the whole social structure of the village so this is just one you know so something as simple as because this is one of the things that you and i had talked about last time yeah that i think there is blatant malevolence and then there is solving a problem that creates a greater problem and yeah. you know, so what i'm hearing david i'm not saying it's true what i'm hearing is that maybe some i, mean, I know there's some douchebags but i really but there's probably some decent folks who went you know we need to help these people out we need to create better irrigation systems and ways with supply etc we need to go in and help them. They've gone in and helped them, helped, and created bigger problems because they've not considered community and how the community interacts with each other. And they create a whole new set of problems for these people. Meanwhile, they can pat themselves on the back about how good they are because they gave you a water system. Exactly right. Wow, okay. Beautifully that, stated. That, that's, that's fascinating. So, you know, the work that my wife did with the Ford Foundation there in the Philippines and in Indonesia was, you know, or getting the government together with a lot of other sources of, of help and, and uh, understanding to go in and actually, they would start out 
studying the community. Oh, they wow. have an irrigation system. Okay. Uh, what's it look like? How is it organized? Then you ask, well, is there anything that we as government with our expertise could offer them that would help them do a better job of controlling and managing their own water to their own benefit? So the goal is that we don't, you know, we don't take control away from them. <clears throat> we find how we can add to their expertise and their own skills to be more effective at what they do. Um, and that began to permeate our, our, our thinking and our understanding that the whole development process, if instead of coming and saying, oh my God, these people are, are absolutely poor, they have no money. And, you know, the way that development process worked and the way the economists, uh, you know, came to realize that their whole approach was very explicit. We've got to get these people off the land and into paying jobs so they can contribute to the GDP. Because if they're not engaged in exchanging money, it counts for absolutely nothing in GDP. And of course, then it translates into they're absolutely poor. And even to this day with the UN's, what I call unsustainable, sustainable development goals, the UN classifies anybody that has less than $1.25 a day income as absolutely poor. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're dependent on money, boy, $1.25 a day is absolutely poor. Yeah, so you wouldn't want to try and live on that in Seattle or New York or Vancouver or anywhere else like that. And but inside of that other world, because it really is another world. Oh, yeah. You don't give a crap. That's actually not like a dollar 25 is a buck to wipe my butt on. I mean, yeah, it's like exactly. it's not relevant. And a dollar 26 doesn't <laughs> change your life. Right. So um, it's, it's a very interesting piece uh, that, um, as we go into the first break, and I, because I want to I go into this in such depth. Because it's a very interesting piece for me, you know, you study psychology, I study psychology. And what I am always looking for is psychological patterns. It's just my way of doing things. <clears throat> and one of the things I notice in what you described is if I move it out of nations or even um, global organizations and corporations, um, and I move it into people, and I say, okay, so what do we have here? We have a person i.e. a government, i.e. Uh, the UN, whoever it might be, or the corporation, who says, look at us, we're so enlightened, we can help you. Because, you know, you poor, lowly people are not as enlightened as us, and we're better than you. But we're kind, and we're caring, and we want to raise you up. And immediately that disproportion of power, that, that inequality of power, sets up a codependent relationship with the lesser, Oh, yeah. And then they become dependent upon us when, in fact, we didn't bother to get down on our knees at their level, see them for who they are, and say, What's it like in your world? And is there anything we have that you actually want? That, for me, is fascinating because, you know, you and I were talking, and one of the things you said was that as a species, you believe that we're on a path to self-extinction, you were talking about at the beginning, oh. and you say that we need to go where we've never been. You know, <laughs> it's beyond Star Trek. You need, we need to go where we've never been. We're gonna take a break. This is the end of our first section. 
I'm here with David Corton. He is, uh, he's got multiple degrees from Stanford. Um, he's written all kinds of books. We're going to come back with David and dig into part two of this. I hope you'll stay with us because I promise you, this is delicious. We'll be back in just a little while. <laughs> 